You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Good to be back with you guys. We're pressing on in the book of Philippians. Okay, so last week, the Apostle Paul sort of gave us his resume for what he accomplished before he met Christ. And he had a pretty long list of things. We talked about how he was a Pharisee, which at the time was an elite group of religious men, about 6,000 of them, and they followed the law scrupulously. And we see that Paul was so zealous in his faith to follow Judaism that he actually set out to persecute Christians and successfully killed some Christians as a result. And so Paul is sort of looking back on his former life as he's given us his autobiographical information, and he has this to conclude. He says in Philippians 3 verse 8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he goes on to say, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ." So he looks back on all of that stuff and he says, I consider everything a loss compared to what I now have in Christ. So he looks back on this righteous standing that he was able to attain by being extremely moral and a good person. And he says, all of that is loss. He looks back on his education that he strove for and he acquired during his life. And he looks back on that and he says, that's nothing but a loss compared to knowing Christ. And he goes on to say, though, that it's rubbish. And and we talked a little bit about what this means. The translators are a little bit squeamish to translate it probably the way it ought to be translated. But this word was often used for the off-scouring that you would find on the streets whenever animals would pass by. And so he's saying... All of these things, all of these accomplishments that people in, our, in my world would look at and think, he's really attained this incredible status. He says, all of that is nothing more than human fecal matter. It's just trash. It's nothing. It's crap. And he says, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So he talks about two different types of righteousness that you can try to attain. The first, he says, is a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And this fits with Paul's old way of life before he met Christ, that he was actually trying to attain this right standing, which is what righteousness means, by following the Old Testament law. And this was really intense. If you ever study the life of the Pharisees, these men would try to live the Old Testament law perfectly. If you go through the Old Testament and you just count through every single Old Testament commandment contained in the first five books of the Old Testament, you will discover that there are 613 commandments. And the Pharisees went so far as to actually create several volumes of case law 
to instruct people so that if they found themselves in unusual circumstances, they could figure out how they could live the law precisely. So he's saying that's option number one, try to live faithfully according to the law. But Scripture declares that God never intended to give us the Old Testament law so that we could follow it perfectly and attain this right standing before him. In fact, it's just the opposite. God says that the reason why he gave the Old Testament law was to reflect dimly a picture of his perfect moral character and thereby showing us that we fall way far short of the standard that he requires in order to come into his presence. Take this for example. Just one commandment, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. This is where God says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Imagine trying to do that faithfully, even just for one day, 24 hours. All day long, you're just sitting there and you're just trying to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Every moment of just one day without faltering. That would be so hard to do. You'd be straining yourself so much that your eyeballs might pop out of your head. And, you know, God is saying, listen, before fallen humanity, you were perfectly moral. I created you perfectly. And you're damaged because of this fallen world in which we live. And so, James sort of says this a different way to show us that God never intended for us to try to live out the Old Testament law. He says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at even just one point, he's guilty of them all. You're guilty if you stumble at even one point. Imagine living your entire life perfectly and in your final breath, you stumble and God's like, too bad. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? And yet that's God's standard. He says, you need to be perfect if you want to have a right standing before me based on the Old Testament law. So really, that's option A, where we strive to be good enough. And really, that sets us up for option B when we realize we can't do that and we fall way far short of God's standard. Paul says there's also a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, God is exacting. He's just. He's incredibly fair, but he's also loving and merciful. And even though we fall way far short of his perfect standard, God loves us so much that he sent his own son Jesus to pay for our guilt. Really, that's If you're new here, that's really the purpose of Jesus coming to earth. He came to pay for your wrongdoing, to pay for your moral imperfections so that you can experience forgiveness, so that you can stop striving to be good enough before God because that's never going to work. And the, the astonishing news of the Bible is this, is that God doesn't want anything from you other than your faith. Turning to him, admitting, 
I'm not good enough. And throwing yourself on his mercy through Jesus allows you to have this righteousness that comes from faith alone. So God's saying, listen, I'm willing to erase all the things that you've done in the past and forgive you for all the things you're going to do in the future simply by placing your faith in me. So you have plan A, which is trying to attain a righteousness that comes by trying to follow the law perfectly, or plan B, which is attaining a righteousness that comes through God by faith. So this raises this question. What happens after we gain this righteousness that comes by faith? What's the next step? You know, sadly, a lot of people come to faith in Jesus. They invite Christ into their lives, but then they never do anything with it. It's almost like they have this incredible gift that they just put in the drawer and do nothing with. And yet God says that he's offering you not only salvation for free, but he's also willing to give you an incredibly just uh, rich and great life with Christ. So that's really what we want to answer tonight. What happens after we gain this righteousness that comes by faith? Well, Paul begins, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, and to know the power of his resurrection. So he's throwing around a term here that's a little unfamiliar to us, the power of his resurrection. What does it mean? Well, he explains this a little bit further. He elaborates on it in another passage, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. He says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I thought this was supposed to elaborate and clarify what he means. It's a little confusing. Well, first of all, he says that we are baptized into Christ. Now, when we think of the word baptism, we typically have this picture in our head of somebody who believes in Jesus and they get dunked into a water tank at church on a Sunday, right? That's baptism. Or maybe in the Catholic tradition, you have a priest holding a baby, splashing water on his face as it's crying. That's baptism. But this word baptism in the Greek can simply mean to put into And so in this context, what Paul is saying is that God has united us with Christ the moment that we come into a relationship with him so that what is true of Christ is now true of us. And that has a lot of different implications. He says that we have been baptized into his death. In other words, when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, it's almost as if, and, and in reality, we died with him the moment that we came to Christ. So that our past, who we were, our former life has been erased, our former identity. And instead, he's given us this new identity, this new way of life that is empowered through his resurrection. And then he gives us this progression. He says that there's this baptism into death. And then there's this rising from the dead so that we might experience the newness of life. So there's this death, this life, and then the new life that comes out of it. So 
What's entailed in the resurrection power? First of all, we're no longer under law. Paul explicitly states this in Romans 7 verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now some Bible teachers look at this and think, you know, it's really dangerous that you're saying that we're no longer under the Old Testament law. I mean, after all, if you tell people that they don't have to follow the Old Testament law once they come to Christ, then they're going to go out and sin it up. Then what are we going to have on our hands? Big problem. And yet, what we see is that people who have actually experienced the life of Christ and God's forgiveness genuinely have an opposite experience. That instead of trying to use what Jesus has done as really a license to do whatever they want, instead they feel this sense of relief that they no longer have to work to earn God's favor. That they feel secure in their relationship with Him and too that God has entered into their lives through the Holy Spirit, thus giving them a new influence that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Also, there's freedom from sin slavery. Romans 6, verse 6 and 7, we know that our old selves were crucified with Christ so that sin may lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Notice, he doesn't say that we stop sinning. You'll hear some preachers who say, you know, once you come to Christ, you need to be holy. That means no more sin. And yet, what he says here is that the power of sin might be broken in us. In other words, this enslavement to our patterns of relating, our addictions that held us down before we met Christ, through what Jesus has done, the power of his resurrection it actually allows us to have freedom to experience true transformation. That we're no longer enslaved to those things. And so it's not a guarantee that once you come to Christ that all of those things are going to disappear, but God gives you the potential to experience real change and transformation. Also, you experience this new spiritual influence in your life, Galatians 5 verse 17, for the flesh, that is the sinful nature, desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh so that they are in conflict with each other that you're not able to do whatever you want to do. I mean, if you are a follower of Christ, you know what this feels like, that internal conflict that you feel, that internal tension that you walk around with day to day. Where on the one hand, you want to follow Christ, you have this new desire to follow Him, but on the other hand, you have this nagging desire that's sort of a hangover from your old way of life. And these two things are constantly pulling and, and, and trying to sway you in its direction. And I think sometimes young Christians experience this and they feel like, the wheels are falling off of my faith. I'm losing it. And yet, this is normative in the Christian life. To feel that internal 
struggle between what God wants and what I want in my selfish desires. The thing is, we just didn't really notice it until we came to Christ, until that new influence came into our lives. My in-laws, they have a place out on the Hocking Hills, and their cabin overlooks the Hocking River. And every summer, there is this canoe livery that drops off hordes of people who do what's called cabrewing. Never heard about it before. I'm, I'm from Chicago, so I'm, I'm new to all this stuff out in the wilderness, right? But cabrewing, if you, if you don't know what that is, it's basically where you take a canoe and you set it into a river with a large cooler filled with beer, and for six hours you just drink beer and float lazily along the river as the sun is beating down on you, and you're experiencing delusions from dehydration. That's cabrewing. Now, if you've ever been in a canoe, especially on kind of a lazy river, you really don't really, you don't notice how strong the current is, right? It just kind of takes you along and stuff. And what you'll notice, though, is if you ever decide to step out of the canoe and just try to hold it in place, it's amazing how even a very calm river has a strong current. And in the same way, it's only until we start to resist the values of the world that we once bought into that we now realize the tension that we, we feel in the Christian life. And so the wheels are not falling off of your faith when you feel that internal tension and that struggle. That's actually a good sign. Maybe to put it another way, I'd be worried if I don't feel any sort of internal wrestling trying to follow God. Also, there's a unique basis for developing deep relationship with other believers in Christ. Look at what 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 says, For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. That is, we are put into what he calls the metaphorical body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks. So he essentially says the racial differences are no longer there. Slave or free those socioeconomic or class differences have been taken away. And we are all given one spirit to drink. One of the things that you'll notice if you're new here is one of the real striking things about what you'll see here is just the authentic community that we have. People genuinely love each other. And coming out of COVID quarantine, where we feel so isolated, we feel lonely, we feel like we can't talk to people about anything real. You know, walking into a room like this or a home church gathering, it's like finding a fountain with cool, refreshing water on a hot summer day in a large park. You realize what you've been missing out on. The thing that you need to realize, though, is that we're nothing special. We didn't work really, really hard to build this unity that you see here. This is something that God has given to us in Christ. You see, God unites us to Christ, but then by extension, we are united to one another. And so we have this commonality that exists. And God says, we don't need to try to work to grow that unity. We just need to preserve it because it's ours in Christ. 
So all of that is entailed in this resurrection power. And really, I'm just sort of scratching the surface. There's so much more. He goes on to say that I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That doesn't sound that uplifting. To share in his sufferings? Remember what Jesus did. He died on a cross. So part of what's entailed in growing spiritually, releasing this resurrection power of Christ in our lives, is actually sharing in his sufferings. What we see here is this life out of death motif that that really you see throughout Scripture. That if you want to experience the life of Christ, you must experience suffering and this death process. And Paul uses this amazing illustration of an earthen vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 through 12, where he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So he's saying, We've experienced so much hardship, so much suffering, many trials, psychological torment, and all of those things God used for His purposes to transform our lives. He uses this metaphor of an earthen vessel. In the ancient world, they used to keep valuable objects inside of these earthen clay pots that were sealed. And sometimes it It had precious oils or perfumes that they could use and sell if they needed to, if they were in a pinch. And Paul is saying, in the same way, when you receive Christ, God actually indwells you with the Holy Spirit so that now you have this treasure, this life of Christ inside of you. But the problem is there is this hardened outer shell that is preventing you from accessing that treasure. And what he needs to do is he actually needs to use suffering to release that. You know, we can do a variety of different things. You know, as we pray, this life of Christ grows within us. As we spend time with fellow Christians, the life of Jesus grows within us. The same thing happens when we serve. As we step out to try to love people, we actually become more Christ-like because One of the primary characteristics about Jesus was that he was loving. And so all of that grows us spiritually, but no matter what we do, this life can't get out without some suffering. And it's important that we qualify the kind of suffering he's talking about is sharing in Christ's suffering, not just suffering in general, because a lot of the suffering we experience, if you're anything like me, is self-inflicted right? Oh man, 
I'm broke. Well, why? It's because I lost my job. I got fired, and I haven't gone out to find another job. That's not the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about here. Instead, he's talking about circumstantial sufferings. You know, you're ready to go to work, and you find that your car died. Or you're trying to finish up an important paper for school, and you drop your laptop, and it's broken. Those sort of circumstantial sufferings or trials that we experience, you know, God can actually use that to chip away at this outer man that conceals the life of Christ hidden within. Or maybe for some of us, it's failure when we try to serve God. You know, sometimes we'll try to share our faith with a friend or family member, and it doesn't go the way we want. It goes sideways, and they just basically reject not only the message, but also the relationship seems damaged as a result. And we think to ourselves, man, I screwed up. Maybe if I said things better, there would have been a different outcome. Or maybe we step out for the first time to speak for God, maybe to teach the Bible, and it goes horribly. One of the worst teachings may be given in recent history because people are rushing out the door with their hands over their ears screaming because it's so bad. And you think to yourself, man, that sucks. (laughs) And yet God can use failure like that to teach us, to grow our faith, and to break that outer person that that pride, that sense of competence that we think is going to make us effective for God. Or, you know, for some of us, it's extreme trials and suffering that suddenly befall us, whether it's a death of a friend or a loved one. It could be a serious illness or a diagnosis that we've gotten recently. You see, God can use even intense suffering in our lives for good so that the life of Christ can be made known to the people around us, so that this treasure can be revealed that's been hidden in this tough outer casing. A few months ago, a few friends of mine and um, my family went out to Sequoia National Park And, you know, as we were looking at the giant sequoias, it kind of reminded me of this verse in John 12, verse 24. Before I get to that, you know, honestly, I I don't really feel super qualified to talk about this because, you know, I've been through some suffering in my life, but I wouldn't say that that kind of suffering has been very intense or has been very tragic. A lot of it, like I said, has been self-inflicted. But there are believers who have gone through a lot who can speak to this subject in a way that I can, so I'll defer to them. This is Miles Stanford in the Green Letters. He says, We often come across Christians who are bright and clever and strong and righteous. In fact, a little too bright, a little too clever. They seem so much much of of self and their strength and their righteousness is severe and critical. But God has a wine press prepared for them through which they will someday pass, which will turn the metallic hardness of their nature into gentle love. One of God's most effective means is this process of failure, 
So many believers are simply frantic over the fact of failure in their lives that they'll go to any lengths to try to hide it, ignore it, or rationalize it. And all the time, they are resisting the main instrument in the Father's hand for conforming us to the likeness of His Son. This one's from Watchman Nee, who is a famous Christian author. This guy in the 1950s was seized by the communist government in China during the Cultural Revolution where he spent the rest of his life in prison and died. And he says this, and this is the first line from his book called Release of the Spirit. He says, anyone who serves God will discover sooner or later that the great hindrance to his work is not others but himself. We should be aware that brokenness is God's way in our lives. If you want to be someone who is mature in Christ, who people can look at and sense that there's really something different about you as a person, then you're going to have to experience brokenness through suffering. Chuck Smith, who was a famous pastor, he, for the first 17 years of his ministry, failed. He would pastor these churches that would either stay the same size or even decline during his tenure as a pastor. And then finally, in the 1960s, he happened to be swept up in this incredible movement of God called the Jesus Movement, where tens of thousands of young men and women in the counterculture, and who later reached hundreds of thousands of people in our country, he was at the epicenter of that. And he says this, the road to successful service for God is lined with failure. In the preparation, discouragements, and defeats, they're all necessary. Had I been successful early on, I would have taken credit for all that God did. I would not have been able to handle the recognition God gave me, but would have taken credit for that success. God wants to receive the glory for the work he does, so he first prepares the person to be the instrument he desires to use. The preparation includes a lot of failure in order to learn the difference between God's work and your own. God leads you through failure so that when he works, you will know for certain that you are not responsible for that success. So God can use failure, suffering, trials that enter your life to refine you, to break that outer casing that contains the life of Christ. Now back to my story about the sequoias. A couple of friends and I, along with my family, went to uh, Sequoia National Park. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but you walk through this area called the giant sequoia groves, and you see these enormous trees, these sequoia redwoods. And, you know, it, those reminded me of John 12, verse 24 where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seed. To give you sort of a scale of what these trees look like, this is General Sherman, the largest living organism on earth. That's my cousin posing there. Actually, I don't know who she is. She's just some random Asian lady in the photo. But anyway, the diameter of the tree at the base is 26 feet, and it is 275 feet tall. These enormous trees live for thousands of years, 
And one of the things that's really interesting about it is apparently the only thing that will cause sequoias to grow and actually to reproduce is fire. The Park Service early on didn't realize this and they would extinguish any fire in the grove. But they started to notice decade after decade that the sequoia trees were not reproducing. And when finally they examined one of the sequoia trees that had fallen, they realized that there had been hundreds of rings of fire damage on these sequoia trees. And so they discovered that it's the heat from these fires that actually opens up the cone containing this, these tiny seeds that then drop to the ground. And in the same way, your life requires suffering and, and struggle and trials for God to allow the life of Christ to grow in you and also for the life of Christ to multiply through you. The thing is, you know, some of us, we resist suffering at all costs. We try to avoid it. Or when we do experience suffering in our lives, we try to numb ourselves through different things like alcohol, drugs, sexual experiences. Or maybe some of us, when we experience suffering, what we try to do is we try to focus in on the tasks that we do day to day so that we can sort of not think about what we're going through. And what God says is that if you want to have the life of Christ come out, then you need to cooperate and share in his sufferings and allow him to work in you. He says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So he's clear, not that I have actually become perfect. In the Christian life, if you try to become perfect, you're going to fail. That's not going to happen until Christ returns one day. And so Paul never arrived during his life, and we're never going to arrive, but we can experience incredible victory in this life. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what is ahead. So he says, first of all, that we should forget what lies behind, that that actually can impede our spiritual growth and development. You know, when we're looking in the rearview mirror, there are a number of things that can plague us. First of all, it could be failures and regrets from our past or before we met Christ, moral failures, things that we neglected to do, missed opportunities. It could be reminiscing about the good old days, back when we were more successful at least in our own minds, in ministry. Or before we met Christ, how much easier life was, how much fun we used to have. And now we're faced with dealing with our problems and this internal struggle that we carry day to day. And yet we tend to strip out all of the bad things in our life before we met Christ and conveniently remember all the good things. It also could be replaying how others have wronged you. 
and dwelling on that in a negative way or clinging to old aspects of our identity. Instead of taking our identity from who God says we are, instead we're, we're clinging to the success that we tried to build our identity on before we met Christ. And so he says, instead, forgetting what lies behind, we need to strain toward what is ahead. And he's using language that sort of evokes this, this idea that you're running a race and you are throwing yourself toward the finish line as you're about to cross it. I don't know if you know who this guy is. He is a uh, runner for Texas A&M. His name is Infinite Tucker. What an awesome name. Infinite Tucker is only known for one thing. When he was running a 400-meter hurdle, at the very end, he did this. (laughs) Watch it again. Yeah. You know, I love his commitment. I love the fact that he allowed his face to finally, finally stop him as he crossed the line. But, you know, when you think about straining forward, it's with this kind of energy that you just give yourself completely over toward following Christ. And what is he talking about? He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so there's this goal, this outcome that he's looking at, the finish line, where one day he's going to meet Christ and be with him, and be perfected. So let's draw some conclusions. First of all, God wants to wipe the slate clean on your life and give you a new life. If you're here tonight and you have never asked Christ to come into your life, I challenge you to do that. This self-salvation project that you have where you're trying to be good enough, hoping that God will one day accept you because you've done enough good things, is bound to fail. Take plan B, which is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Throw yourself on his mercy and you can start this relationship, this transformation that you can experience throughout the course of your life. Secondly, when you ask God to grow you spiritually, you're asking Him to suffer. I don't know if you know that. Be careful what you pray for. It's entailed in that. And you see, many will fall away due to suffering and will never experience the release of this life of Christ in us. But the question I want to ask you and leave you with is, Will you hold still and let God conform you to the likeness of His Son, Jesus? Okay, that is Philippians 3, verse 9 through 14. Yes, we pray that you would help us to see the end goal that you're trying to accomplish in our lives as we strive to grow with you and experience suffering. We know that if we don't see the ultimate outcome, that we'll lose motivation and um, we'll have difficulty persevering for you during suffering. We thank you that you do promise that as we share in your son's suffering, 
that you can actually use that for good in our lives and transform us. And thank you for the countless lives, even in this room, where we have seen this play out. Many people in this room have undergone suffering for you and um, as a result have grown closer to you and have become more godly people. We thank you for their example and uh, pray that we can all aspire to become like Paul and like those who have gone before us to suffer and to do so with faith. And we thank you ultimately that you are a God who loves us and are merciful and that you want a relationship with us. I pray for any of those people here tonight who just realize that they are trying to be righteous through doing good things instead of being righteous through the faith that we can have in Christ. I pray that they would just turn to you and just uh, throw themselves at your mercy and invite Christ into their lives. And we thank you for anybody who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.